1: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary.
2: In all the creative work that we do, nothing comes from nowhere, you know, that there's nothing truly original, as in it just popped up and came out of nowhere. Uh, most of the creative work we do is the the transformation or mutation of one or two more ideas.
3: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this episode, Debbie talks with Austin Kleon, who describes himself as a writer who draws.
2: This is the great pain of creative work, is that once the thing is done, it's dead to you.
3: His books include Steal Like an Artist, 10 Things Nobody Told You About Being Creative, and Keep Going, 10 Ways to Stay Creative in Good Times and Bad. Debbie interviewed Austin Kleon at the South by Southwest Festival in 2019. First a word from Debbie from our sponsors, then her interview with Austin Kleon in front of a live audience.
0: I love music. I love listening to music and entertaining with music and singing along with music. And I love music playing all through my house. Even before Sonos asked if I'd be interested in partnering with them, I had a Sonos system in my home. I chose Sonos because the acoustics are breathtaking and the design is world class. Speaking from years of experience, everything about setting up a Sonos system is easy and intuitive. All you need to do is plug in a speaker and open the Sonos app. I can control the sound through my app, through Apple AirPlay 2, or my favorite, with my voice. And the sound? Well, the sound is glorious. Sonos works with experts in acoustics and engineering, then collaborates with Oscar and Grammy-winning producers, mixers, and artists to ensure an unprecedented, state-of-the-art listening experience. Sonos also uses a remarkable technology called TruePlay, To ensure that Beyonce sounds like Beyonce and Kendrick sounds like Kendrick and Radiohead sounds like Radiohead. I am so thrilled Sonos is partnering with me here on Design Matters. If you want to know more about the best sound system in the world, please go to Sonos.com to learn more. With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free. And ask yourself, what will you create today? Austin, you just told me that you consider yourself to be a writer who draws.
2: Why? I fundamentally think of myself as a writer and I really believe that a writer is a professional reader basically Mm -hmm. like that's why I became a writer is so I could read books professionally basically (laughs) (laughs) it's a good hustle actually Um, but I also stole that line a writer who draws from Saul Steinberg who's one of my artistic heroes and a great Romanian which I'm a quarter.
0: And I am too, by the way. Really? Yes, I am. You were born in Circleville, Ohio, population 13,314. Is it that much?
2: Yes, it is. I'm surprised it's that much.
0: (laughs) Your dad, Scott, was an associate professor at Ohio State. Your mom, Sally, was a guidance counselor, educator, and later a principal. You said you hit the genetic lottery. How so?
2: Oh, you know, I got intelligent parents who love me, and that's the ovarian lottery. I mean, you know, you... you that's, we're just going right there, I right mean, away. you know, you get parents who are reasonably intelligent and who love you. I mean, that's half of the battle right there. So you're and the product of good parenting. You're hugely ahead. My mom's going to be so excited that we're about to talk about her, by the way. Well, it was just really the one question. Okay, good. Uh, No, I mean, my parents, it's it's funny because Milton Glaser has the best line about this. He said, you know, I had a mother who told me I could do anything and a father who said, prove it. (laughs) And he said, that's the best school there was
0: you've said that it was in elementary school that you first became interested in what you've described as the symphony of words working together with images. And then school neatly divided the two disciplines into art classes and English classes. And tell us about the impact that that had on you, because I know that that was something that was perplexing to you, if we can use that word for somebody so young.
2: I think about this all the time now. I have two boys, one is six, one turned four today. It is a birthday, it is Jules's birthday. Happy birthday, Um, Jules. And they just, they don't have any kind of disciplines. Like they don't think in terms of what's math or what's English or what's science. Like Owen is really into the planets right now. So he's really into like constellations and astronomy stuff. And how he processes that is he draws pictures of the planets. He'll write little booklets about the planets. He'll make songs in Band about the planets. Wow. There's how no... old is he? He's six. Wow. I think about how he processes the world. He has no disciplinary divisions. It's totally normal for him to think, I'm going to make a zine about going to Cleveland to visit my grandparents and then I'm going to make a song about Cleveland. He just doesn't have any kind of idea that if you're a scientist, you're not supposed to, like, write a song about it or whatever, you know? And, and to bring it back around, when I was young, I mean, my dream was, like, just copying Garfield comics on the kitchen floor, and pictures and words were together, and it wasn't until later... Where there was that pressure where you're like, okay kid, are you going to be an English major? Are you going to be an art major? Are you going to do English class or art class? And all of a sudden, things split apart for me and I felt like I had to choose.
0: Well, it's interesting. When does that consciously become part of the way we have to live? If you think about it, children are a lot like dogs in that they live in the moment. You know, they don't, they don't start out thinking about the future.
2: They also shit on the floor occasionally. <laughs> um,
0: this is a comedy act in the I'm making. Sorry. You can hear that, right? Um, so when do we begin to start to think about the future as opposed to today? Do you know, given that you have such small children, have they started yet worrying about their futures?
2: No, and I love it. I mean, I love that they don't. I wrestle with school all the time, because I, I really think it's school. I, I was my wife and I, we were both like high achieving, like I was valedictorian in my high school. That gives you the idea of like, I mean it was in Circleville, but uh, <laughs> but I, I am really disturbed by the way in formal education knowledge is broken up into disciplines. Because it messed me up so much when I was, when I especially when I became like about 18 and you had to pick your major in college. You know, like that, just to, well, you got to pick something. And I was like, I don't want to. I love all these things. And there's actually a local guy, Stephen Tomlinson, and he said this thing that just, yeah. Stephen just blew my mind one time. He got up on stage and he said, He went to an advisor, and he said, I I love theater, I love economics, and I love God. Wow. Which one do I choose? And the professor looked at him, and he said, that is the dumbest question anyone has ever asked me. And I think the guy's name was Will Spong, and he was a local guy, too, and he said, What you do is you keep all of your passions at play in your life. So if there are three things that you love more than anything in this world, you spend time on those three things. And then they start to talk to each other. And that's when your life begins to form. And I I think the fundamental role of the writer is to say what other people have been unable to articulate. They already have the idea They just weren't able to articulate it. Like, a lot of people come up to me and they're like, you said everything I've been thinking in this book. And that's part of the role of the writer. And when Stephen was on stage and he said that, he said, don't discard, because if you cut off one of your passions, it's a phantom limb, and you're going to feel that pain forever. And I am just trying really hard to help my children identify passions and just keep these things in your life. I
0: had an experience after I graduated college back in the early 80s. One of my very first interviews was at Condé Nast, which is where I desperately wanted to work. And when I met with the director of human resources, she asked me what kind of design I wanted to do. And I didn't know there were different kinds of design, promotional design, editorial design, and so forth. And without even thinking about it, I just blurted out the first thing that came into my head, which was, oh, I'll do anything. And that really wasn't the kind of answer the Miranda priestley esque human resources director at Condé Nast was expecting, and I didn't get the job.
2: I know you've talked to Michael Beirut before, and he's an Ohio guy. He's
0: a fellow Ohioan, yes.
2: And uh, he said something that was true for me, too. I didn't know there was such a thing as a designer. Right. And I really didn't know about design until I was a librarian, and I found Edward Tufte's work. Yes, yes. And that was the first time I was like, oh, information, design. But that freaks me out in this world about how simply not knowing the name for something means that it's not in your life.
0: You've said that your world really blossomed when your family got their first internet connection late in high school and you were able to post your art class projects online. Um, As you recalled, all of a sudden it didn't matter that I'm from this small town. I could reach a world I wanted to be part of through this little telephone line. What kind of reaction did you get when you started posting your work?
2: Oh, none. You know... (laughs) And I, and I think this is really important. Sometimes I don't think that the most important thing about blogging or keeping a website or even writing books is the response. I think it's the act of doing it. For me, you got to go back to like 95, 96. Like if you're in a rural area back then, the best you could hope for was dial up internet. It came with this little bit of web space with it. And one of the teachers at my mom's school had given me this bootleg copy of Dreamweaver. Do you guys know that? So, like, I just took to this immediately. And I I think it had Photoshop, too. And I just thought, like, it was really the act of, like, making a personal website and being like, who am I? You know, because I was only, like, 17 or something. But I was like, I looked at this website and I was like, well, I'm a guy who like, I I love to make music with my band and I love to write stuff and I love to like make art. This seems like a place that I can tell everybody about the stuff that I love. And right now, you know, I'm about to turn 36 this year. I am doing the same thing I did when I was 16. I have this website and I'm like, I wanna share these things that I love with whoever's out there.
0: I wasn't going to open the door, but since you took me there, tell us about your bands, your high school (laughs) bands, what type of instrument you played, some of the names of your bands.
2: Well, so I am trained on classical piano, but when I was 14 or 13, I heard Green Day and... You know, anybody change. Anybody who heard Green Day at the age of 13, they asked for a guitar for Christmas. My best friend growing up, uh, we met at Sunday school because <laughs> he was the other freak like me who just hung around by the piano and might not have been into the lesson. Uh, he's a world-class drummer. So I grew up with him. Our band was called Insult to Injury. And like... All our songs were just, you know, Green Day ripoffs about girls who had mistreated us and (laughs) how misunderstood we were and how angry we were. And music is something I gave up in college because I was like, I don't have time for this. And art's another thing that I gave up in college. I was like, I vividly remember being in art class and the professor, he was like, you should be an art major. And I was just like, I'm a writer. And he's like, no, you should be an art major. And I remember feeling that tug. And I quit that drawing class because it was so much work.
0: Well, after, just... after graduating valedictorian from your high school, you went to Miami University of Ohio. Yeah. You got your bachelor's of philosophy in interdisciplinary studies. What were you hoping to be
2: professionally at that point? College professor. I wanted to be a teacher. Because that's all I thought you could do if you were a weirdo like me. Like, I just, you know, my mom, all my aunts were teachers. My dad was a college professor. And I just thought, well, that's what I'll do. Right towards the end of college is when I really started trying to, okay, because I got really into comics. And comics were the thing that I was like, okay, this is a profession that uses pictures and words together to communicate. And like reading Scott McCloud and Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics, like that really blew things open for me. And I was like, I want to explore this more.
0: So then, how did you get
2: the job as a librarian? That was dumb luck. My wife's from Cleveland, so we moved to Cleveland right after college, and I just applied for whatever job I thought I could get. I applied for like a writing greeting cards at American Greetings. That's like. That's what R. Crumb Crum worked for American Greetings in Cleveland. Did you get rejected he, from that? Oh, job? yeah, for sure. Got rejected from that. But I got this cush, man, this job was awesome. It was uh, 20 hours working the reference desk at a public library in a suburb of Cleveland, and it had benefits. So it was like a dream job for a young writer.
0: What kind of things were you writing back then?
2: I was working on my blog. I was really trying to do comics back then. So I was doing these like, kind of weird faux woodcut comics on the computer. So I was using this kind of digital technology to make something that looked real old. And I was trying to do comics, but it was quickly becoming apparent to me that, one, comics take too long for me. I mean, there's a reason Chris Ware only puts a book out every... 10 years or something. I mean, comics just take a huge amount of time. And I am not a patient enough artist to do that.
0: One of the key elements of your blog was your blackout poems. Yeah. And in 2006, you created poetry by redacting text with Sharpie from articles in the New York Times. And you used the New York Times just because your wife had a subscription?
2: So here's a story. My wife, worked in Ohio City, which at that time in Cleveland was a a somewhat sketchy neighborhood, and they were getting their papers stolen off the front step. So the boss actually had the papers delivered to our apartment. So the whole reason I used the New York Times in the beginning is that we just had this stack of New York Times. It was purely like, use what's around.
0: Now, I believe that this body of work came out of an episode of severe writing block that you had. Yeah. So talk about that. When did you make your
2: first blackout poem? How did, it, how did that moment occur? So I had this blog, and I didn't know what to fill it with. You know, because you start a blog, that's the first thing. And then you're like, what do I put on this? I was a huge fan of Post Secret, Frank Warren's site. So people mail in postcards, and then he posted them on this Blogspot blog. And that was the first blog I actually saw that used images a lot. I was like, oh, you can put images on here. Like, you don't have to just write on a blog. So there was that. And then the other thing, the other side I was really into as a teenager was the smoking gun. They used to post, like, FBI files Like, they'd put, like, John Lennon's FBI file on there. And so seeing those redacted documents just, like, stuck in my brain. So it was, like, post-secret and smoking gun. So the first time I did a blackout poem was simply just to try to, like, get an idea for a short story. So it was a writing prompt? Yeah, it was, like, a writing prompt. It was just, like, an exercise. And then when my wife saw them, she said, well, these are, like, finished pieces, Maybe you should put these on your blog. And that's it. That's the whole story.
0: Why were you experiencing writer's block? What was happening in your life at that point?
2: I was just young and stupid and didn't have anything to write about.
0: Fair enough. Yeah. (laughs) NPR NPR called you up and did a story on your blackout poem shortly after you began posting and an editor at HarperCollins reached out and eventually published a book of 150 new blackout poems which you created from what I understand on your bus ride back and forth from work. On your lunch break. Um, I love that. The book is titled Newspaper Blackout, and Time Out Chicago wrote this. Turns out Richard Nixon wasn't our nation's most gifted red actor. The Wall Street Journal dubbed it kind of a warsack approach to reading newspapers. The New Yorker declared that your poems resurrect the newspaper when everybody else is declaring it dead, which I think is a wonderful epitaph for a tombstone. And the book got a fair amount of attention for a book of poems. Were you surprised by the reaction, especially given that it came out of this sort of suffering and writer's block?
2: That was a weird book for me. I mean, I was in a cubicle at the law school over at UT when all that went down. I just thought books were on the way out. I thought, this is my only chance. So did everybody. Yeah. I just thought, like, this is my only chance. Like, I got to do it now And that was a weird time. I mean, you know, that's something I think a lot about now. Anyone who's up on a stage or has any kind of an audience who doesn't acknowledge luck is just deluding themselves. I mean, of course we make our own luck and we make moves that, like, put us in the right place in the right time, but to not acknowledge luck in the process is just seems to me a great disservice to everyone.
0: So what about that experience was luck?
2: Just like, you know, it's 2008. There are all these like 24 year old editors at book publishing places. They're looking for blogs to turn into books. It was was luck. You're in the right place at the right time. And people still read blogs back then. I mean, now I'd be an Instagram poet. Poems are, they, they're like the original viral memes. You know, like a poem travels, it transports. A poem is like, the reason I like poems and comics is that you can clip them out and put them on your refrigerator. Someone sends me a picture and they're like, I put one of your pieces up on the fridge. Like, that's, that's, that's the best compliment for me. Well, they want
0: to live with it. That's the other really compliment
2: special. The other compliment is when someone tells me that they keep my books on the back of the commode in the bathroom. I, I then find, they're likely being read every day. I'm, actu- I'm like, that is a great compliment to me, actually. Because <laughs> that's where people read.
0: After the publication of Newspaper Blackout, you kept working at your day job. And I believe at that point you were selling ad space, internet ad space, is that right? Mm. No, what was your job back now, then? No, what
2: happened was, um, so when I did Newspaper Blackout, I was simply doing web design at the, at the law school. And then after Newspaper Blackout came out, I had a buddy in advertising. And he said, you should think about being a copywriter. And they knew a bunch of people who were kind of like me who had copywriting in their background. So I got a job at this uh, marketing agency downtown that did digital marketing called um, Springbox. So that job, I didn't do very long, only like a year and a half, because what happened was... That's when I got invited to give the Steal Like an Artist talk, the original talk. So let's
0: talk about that. In 2011, you gave this talk in which you told students the 10 things you wish you had known when you were starting out. And you titled it, How to Steal Like an Artist. You put your list on your blog after the talk and it went viral and got millions and millions of hits. Now, I understand that you stole the concept of the talk itself. Is that true? Yes. Tell us about that.
2: So, I had misunderstood the gig. It was actually a convocation speech. So it's kind of like a beginning type thing or just a middle of the... I thought it was a commencement speech, So I thought it was like, go forth, young children who are like four years younger than me and, you know, like (laughs) do that. But so I had misunderstood. So I just was like, I was a little freaked out because I didn't do as much speaking as I do now. And uh, my wife and I walk every morning. That's like the big thing that we do, even with kids, like we load them in the stroller and all hundred pounds of them and, you know, push them around. And... I just said to her, I was like, what do I say to these people who aren't that much younger than I am? And she was like, well, the best talk I ever heard was a lady who came to our school. My wife went to a really good girls' school in um, Cleveland called Laurel, and they had a speaker, and she came, and she simply had a list of 10 things that she wished she had known when she was in high school. And I said, boom, I'm taking that, you know? So I just, Like, kept stupid college me in my head. Because, you know, I really don't think there's a lower life form than, like, a 19-year-old freshman (laughs) boy. I I mean, and I thought, I'm stealing that. And I just wrote what I wish I had known when I was 19 and starting out.
0: Did your wife remember who that person was?
2: I wish she did. I don't, I'd have to, she'd have to drill. We should figure it out.
0: (laughs) I know who it was. You know who it was. It was me. No. Yes.
2: Yes. (laughs) That's the surprise. Oh my God. (laughs) She is gonna freak out. In 2010 and
0: 2011, I was doing a talk called 10 Things I Wish I Knew When I Graduated, and I did it as a Creative Mornings as well. Oh,
2: wow. (laughs) That's I think crazy. the book should be
0: called How to Steal from Debbie Millman. <laughs> and actually, I'm honored and touched and thrilled. And yeah. That's awesome. I
3: don't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, So, editors of publishing houses started reaching out to you, and, and the result was your book, Steal Like an Artist 10 Things Nobody Told You About Being Creative, which was published in 2012. And I understand at the time that you asked your boss if you could go out on a two-month book tour, and he said no. Yeah. I think he's really sorry about that now. Well,
2: I should admit, I was a terrible employee. Like, I always wanted to do something else. And so I think that was a tumultuous time. In his defense, uh, Springbox was up for sale at that time, and none of us knew whether we'd have jobs or not past the summer. And I, would, I asked for two months of unpaid leave to go on book tour, and he was just like, nah, it's not really going to fly. And I said, okay. And this is where my dad's advice to live below your means came in, because my wife and I, I won't use the word cheap, um, but we are, th- we are thrifty. Frugal. <laughs> we are frugal. And um, we just save and save and save. And we just had, again, luck. I graduated with no student debt. Because I went to a state school, and I was valedictorian, so I like had my school paid for, and my wife had some debt from school that I paid off pretty early just through working and whatever. So like we had no debt. And Austin, we... how was that luck? Uh, well, how was I mean, that luck? I think it's hard work. Yeah, it's that's, hard work, but I that's mean, what's your work ethic. Well, you know, I've really changed my my tune about this and certain years because there are people who are born into, you know, not as cushy situations that, you know, they got to take a lot of debt on just to make that leap. Right. You know, like if you're in a real working class situation and you want to do like creative work, for example, like one of the best ways to make that jump is to go to a fancy school that you got to pay money for and you'll take the loans on just to get a toehold in that world. And I just have had my thinking pushed a little bit about the you know always live below your means thing because that is a fundamentally middle class position. Yeah, I did the like, same thing that is, always. Yeah, like that is like your parents were middle class and the anxiety of the middle class is like you just hang on. In previous years I've just pushed myself to remember that even being middle class is a privileged position. And so I I don't to simply be born into that position where you get that advice is luck. But of course, yeah, I didn't piss it away. I mean, it's know?
0: interesting because I also grew up in similar circumstances, but always felt that if I didn't live below my means, I'd end up living homeless on the street. Yeah,
2: you have that anxiety, that's the anxiety. That something of- would it would always go, it could always go away, yeah, it could always... That's the anxiety of, like, being a middle-class American. Is I like, thought what it if I lose this? in need of therapy. It could
0: be. Well, but I mean, there's me. that.
2: I definitely need that. So
0: you left your job at that point.
2: Yeah, so I quit my was, job. Was it terrifying? Well, here's the thing. And I, again, I really want to let people know like the real true story behind this stuff. My wife and I had a year's salary saved. She was at UT and had great health benefits. I mean, this is why like on my blog all the time and I, you know, I am always like, if you want to support writers, get us universal health care in this country. Get us free health care. if you If you want people to have an even playing field, you cannot do any kind of meaningful work if you were worried about your health. Or money. It's in every developed country. It's time. If you have, So I'm just like, I had health care and I had some savings. And for me, it was just like, yeah, it was kind of a leap, but I lived in Austin, Texas in like 2012. I was going to get a job afterwards. You know, I just figured like, well, I know a ton of people in the ad world and I'll just get another copywriter job.
0: Well, the book came out,
2: Yeah, the book- sold
0: over a million copies, it became a New York Times bestseller.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, of the many brilliant lessons in the book, you emphasize that everything is a remix. Explain what you mean
2: by that. Well, that's a phrase uh, that Kirby Ferguson, a uh, uh, filmmaker, and we actually did a talk at South by Southwest 2012, Um, uses, and the idea is that in all the creative work that we do, nothing comes from nowhere. You know, that there's nothing truly original, as in it just popped up and came out of nowhere. Uh, Most of the creative work we do is the, the transformation or mutation of one or two more ideas. There's a great line by a guy named Wilson Misner, he says, you know, if you steal from one author, it's plagiarism, if you steal from a hundred authors, it's research. (laughs)
1: You know,
2: so that's the kind of, the more numerous and wide-ranging of your people you steal from, the more original your work is going to be. So that was really the thing about Steal Like an Artist, is that if you truly want to be an original artist, you need to actually suck in more influence. Like, you need to take in more influence. Because you you have really young people who, when they start out, they're like, I don't want to be influenced. Like, I want to be my own thing. And you're like, no, kid, that's not how it works. Like, you digest the world. And then how it goes through you is your work. And that was what Basquiat said. You know, he's like, it's 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 me taking that stuff and running it through my mind that makes the work.
0: I think ideas are a lot like atoms. You know, atoms make up everything, right. and all ideas make up other ideas. Yeah. Um, you followed up your 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 first book, or actually that was your second book, with another book, yeah. but your most current book is titled Keep Going, 10 Ways to Stay Creative in Good Times and Bad. Now, you said that a few years ago you were in a bad spot and you wrote this book because you needed to read it. And I wanted to read just a little bit from, from the um, beginning. Um, I wrote this book because I needed to read it. A few years ago, I'd wake up every morning, check the headlines on my Are you looking at your phone? No, I'm just taking a picture. Oh, so I'm look. Look at that. He's such a
2: millennial thing to do, right?
3: (laughs) uh. Am I boring
2: you? (laughs) Now she's laughing, and I have her laughing with me.
0: (laughs) A few years ago, I'd wake up every morning, check the headlines on my phone, and feel as if the world had gotten dumber and meaner overnight. Meanwhile, I'd been writing and making art for more than a decade, and it didn't seem to be getting any easier. Isn't it supposed to get easier? Everything got better for me when I made peace with the fact that it might not ever get easier. The world is crazy, creative work is hard, life is short, and art is long. How's that for an opening paragraph? It's a really good book. Tell us how this book might have become a remedy for you in this experience of writing it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I just needed like a guide. I just felt unmourned, And let's be honest, it's the election of 2000. 2016 was a rotten year and it really felt like we lost something. I mean, we just the tone of the country shifted so horribly and everyone I know was just distraught you know, and particularly in my house, it was like a bomb went off, you know, and it's a combination of having really young kids and the climate of the country, and it had been like three or four years since I had written a book, and I was just like, how do I just keep doing this? And I really had to kind of dig, and I I needed a manual for myself, because it's interesting, because all my other books were written for someone else. Newspaper Blackout, like an editor asked me Do you want to do a book? I said, yes. Steal Like an Artist was like, would you like to talk to these kids? And I was like, yes. Show Your Work was like, all these people keep asking me the same questions. I feel like I should answer them in a book and then I'll never have to answer the questions again, which is really stupid because if you write a book, people are going to ask you about that book forever until you die, if you're lucky. So writing a book to answer questions is not a great thing. But keep going... (laughs) You know, Keep Going was the first book where I was like, I need this. I need this book to exist. Like, I need this to keep me on the path. And, you know, writing it was incredibly therapeutic. And the thing that's interesting about my books is like, once I write them, I forget what's in them. Really? It's really strange. Yeah. Like, some dude on Twitter today was like posting some things from Steel Like an Artist, and I was like, Is that in there? Oh, yeah. Because, you know, this is the great pain of creative work, is that once the thing is done, it's dead to you. I mean, execution is literally like an execution. When you execute a project, it is dead then. But a book doesn't start its life until almost like half a year after you've finished it. And so now I have this weird work of like...
0: Thank ush- you, next. Yeah, yeah, thank you, next. <laughs> uh- the the book follows a 10-point system. It involves such highlights as build a bliss station, make gifts, and forget the noun, do the verb, which was one of my favorite. Tell us about that.
2: This is very easy and quick. Everybody knows someone who wants to be a writer, right? They, they want to be a writer because they want to go to a party and say, I'm a writer, which who would ever want to do that? Because the... Immediately you get asked, well, what do you write? Is there anything I had read? And you're like, no, (laughs) not really, probably. But, you know, someone wants to be a designer or they want to be a rock star or whatever it is. Everybody wants to have the noun or the job title. Very few people want to do the actual work that gets that job title. Very few people want to do the verb that gets you the noun. And... To bring it back to the beginning of our conversation, when I was a young man, if I had focused more on the verbs, if I had focused more on those things I love doing, like writing and reading and drawing, if I had just thought about how to keep those verbs in my life and not worry so much about the job title or the noun I was after, I think I would have gotten to where I was going a little bit quicker.
0: I think T.S. Eliot talked about this I think I'm getting it correct. He was talking to somebody, and when he asked the person what they wanted to be, they said, a poet. And he said, how do you be what's, a poet? What's that? You can write poetry. Yeah. And that's, that's all you can do.
2: Yeah. I'm also interested in the way that job titles and nouns can restrain the kind of work that you do. Because what if you're a filmmaker, and all of a sudden you want to write a novel? Or, you want, or you're Steven Soderbergh, and you want to go paint for a while? And job titles will mess you up. I mean, I find this fundamentally challenging thing that happens when people are successful. They get successful by doing something, and then they get to this point, and then they change because all of a sudden, well, I'm a famous author now. Like, I should, like, for example, like, I am fundamentally at my best when I get up every morning and I think about writing a blog post. Like, I should, what am I going to write about today? Like, that is a healthy, that is how I stay on the path. After Show Your Work came out, there were years that I just let the blog, I only posted to the blog when I had some kind of, like, long essay medium piece. And I didn't write a book for five years, you know? So how do you how do you push
0: yourself to do it when you feel bad about yourself yeah. or you have a bad bout of self-loathing or...
2: I don't know anything about martial arts, but I would think that like when you're practicing martial arts, like you have to do it every day, or if you're a great tennis player or something, you have to play every day. Like I think about what I do in terms of a creative discipline. Like it's stuff that I do. So every day I have to sit in front of a keyboard. Well, really, what I really have to do is sit down in my note with my notebook and diary, because that is really where a lot of my ideas come from. I, I keep an old school handwritten diary diary now. And sometimes it has drawings in it, sometimes it has writing or collage. Like, that is the heart of my creative practice then. And then after I do that, I do a blog post. And that might be all I do that day. I might go off and read then. But if I don't do those things, I am not a nice guy to be around. Like, that is the practice.
0: But what if you ever, do you ever wake up and think, ugh, I don't want to do this?
2: Every day. And you know what I do? I sit down and I write, I don't want to do this. <laughs> That's the great thing about being a writer. Is like, if you don't want to, you just start writing about how much you hate writing, and then you, something comes of it. It's magic. It happens every day time if you're a drawer it's the same thing it's like i'm gonna make the shittiest drawing i possibly i hate drawing i hate this i should have been a banker (laughs) i'm gonna draw a fat banker with my face on it and then you've got something
0: Do you you think that this struggle is something that is prone to creative people or of creative people? Do you think bankers are, are having that same, I should have been an
2: artist? I think bankers probably have it worse because they don't have an outlet for this. You know, Jeff Tweedy writes really beautifully about this in his memoir, Let's Go. He's like... Everyone suffers, but like, thankfully for artists, like, they actually have an outlet for it, you know? So one of the things I talk about a lot in this book is hobbies. I think everyone needs just a good old-fashioned hobby. And what are yours? Music. Playing the piano. When I sit down at the piano, I'm not even that good, but man, I play some Bach. It just feels like someone scrubbed your brain with a Brillo pad after you play Bach. It's just like, and playing music, I, I, I think music is the best art form. I think it's the most beautiful, the most universal, the most immediately compelling. I've always felt that way, and I still feel that way. So for me, it's music. Owen and I get in GarageBand, and we made the music that's in the book trailer for this book.
0: Wonderful. Where can people see the book trailer?
2: Um, if you go to my website, austincleon.com, you can see it there.
0: I have one more question. I understand that you believe that boredom is making a comeback. Talk a little bit about that, why and how.
2: I think there's going to be boredom ranches, basically. (laughs) Just like, I think there's going to be a ranch where you go and they take your phone and you're like, what are the activities today? And they're like, there are none. (laughs) Welcome to the ranch. Sounds like rehab. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, Anne Helen Peterson just wrote this piece about driving around this kind of third world country and, and having to take buses and how, you know, there's no Wi-Fi signals. So she just had to listen to music on these van rides and, I, and just how wonderful it was just to be bored and stare out the window and just listen to music. Just to trim the noise of the world is just, that's the bliss station element. To have a place that you go and there's nothing to do but be with yourself. I think that's gonna be, if I could invest, maybe I should buy a ranch outside of the Boredom Ranch. Sign up. That's a good idea. Is that URL available? Someone's gonna steal it.
0: You you quote some masters in Keep Going, and I just wanted to share one. You quote Linda Barry, who writes, The phone gives us a lot, but it takes away three key elements of discovery. Loneliness, uncertainty, and boredom. Those have always been where creative ideas come from. I read that and I thought, okay, to be lonely is to be human, and that's a
2: good thing and a great thing to end on.
0: Yes. Austin Kleon, thank you so much for joining me here at South by Southwest in this very special episode of design matters. Austin Kleon's new book is titled keep going 10 ways to stay creative in good times and bad. Thank you. Austin Kleon.
2: The pleasure was mine. Thank you. And thank you for coming.
3: For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash debbie slash millman. That's d.rip slash debbie dash millman if you subscribe to this podcast through apple podcasts please write a review or just link to the podcast on social media design matters is produced by curtis fox productions the show is published exclusively by DesignObserver.com and recorded at the school of visual arts masters in branding program in new york city the editor-in-chief of design matters media is zachary pettit and the art director is emily wyland